0: Well, Winning Time, the HBO series based upon my 2014 book, Showtime, finally debuted earlier this week. And to all the people, and I mean all the people, who reached out to wish me well, to offer a kind word, a positive thought, I just want to say thank you for making these past few days so incredibly special. I told my son recently, everyone deserves to attend at least one Hollywood premiere in a lifetime, or to at least feel the accompanying buzz. You, loyal listeners, have gifted me with that buzz, and I thank you. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Rodney Barnes. The fantastic writer and executive producer of Winning Time, the HBO series based upon my 2014 book, Showtime. This is episode number 250. Let's sing some yay.
1: Dad, your podcast sucks and you smell like vinegar and pottage cheese.
0: All right, Rodney, first of all, nice to have you here. Good to see you. It's great Uh, to be here, Mr. Perlman. Wait, so I'm fascinated. You just said to me. So you said you're sitting at your desk and this is your place and it's your writing place. And one day they're going to find you dead at this, at this oh desk. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I'm a guy who um, I like to write in coffee shops in different spots because I like the illusion of social interaction. And yeah,
1: I, can't. What? Right, I was going to ask you that. Um, I need to, why can't you? Uh, I can't tune out the other stuff. I can't tune out the noise. Um, there's a great book called the war of art by Stephen Pressfield. Uh, that talks about resistance. And I'm always looking for a reason not to do this. uh, Anything, it could be television, it could be my phone, it could be social media, it could be food, it could be comic books. I'm always looking for something to distract me from doing the work. And if I can create the illusion of silence, like right now there's a television on behind me. Um, but it's quiet. I'm here. And if I want noise, I can reach out and get it. But I try my best to stay within a focus dynamic. Are you able to achieve that for the most part? Not as much as I'd like. Yeah. I'd like for it to be more. But then again, from what my therapist tells me, I will never be satisfied when it comes to my, the amount of work that I put up. Like I'm always adding more and more and more. And I think it's, it started because I wanted some place to put my anxiety. I'm always worried, frantic. There's always something going on in here. And I found, if you could see my whiteboard here, it's like if I can put that energy into something productive, it doesn't destroy my life. But if I just sit in in sorrow and worry, um, it'll eat me alive. So, you know, I try to keep a lot of stuff going. I try to create a... Um, a good balance of um, worry and work. It's very really interesting. I haven't had this
0: discussion with people, but I um like you. I like having four or five things going on at the same time, four or five mm-hmm. projects at the same time. And when I finish a book, people will be like, Oh, you must be so happy. And I'll be happy for about two days. And then I just feel useless. I, I'm not, not exaggerating this. I feel oh. useless. I feel wayward. I feel itchy Unsettled, unmoored, don't know what to do with myself. You're the same way.
1: Yeah. uh, Max Bornstein, um, the other writer, EP showrunner of uh, our show, Uh, we talk about it all the time. Like, I will finish. um, I started writing comic books because uh, of that feeling that if I'm writing a movie or a TV show or something like that, I would have those, it wouldn't be two days for me. It would be like six hours where I feel this sense of accomplishment and I go get something to eat or I watch TV or a movie or something. Then it's like I start to feel guilty, like I'm lazy, like I should be doing something. Why aren't I doing something? And logic comes in and says, well, you just did that thing. But this emotional thing, the thing in me that doesn't work quite as well says, no, no. You're, you're lazy. You should be doing something. Other writers are doing something right now. You're not. And there's this guilt. There's this massive guilt that I feel. So I started doing comics to fill that in so that I didn't have to jump into a major project, that I would have something relatively small that I could do in a couple of days to just keep the exercise of writing going, both practically as a writer, but emotionally as well, to sort of um, keep those other feelings at bay.
0: OK, now, do you struggle with this, though? So you're working on winning time, the HBO show that's coming out, just as an example. Mm -hmm. And it's all consuming and you're Mm -hmm. writing every day and you're working on it every day. And there's this golden ring that's supposed to be the show comes out. Okay. The show comes out. There's a premiere party. You go to the premiere Mm -hmm. party and the show is on HBO. This is amazing. Blah, blah, blah. The show is on HBO. This is the best. Mm -hmm. But do you actually get, does the satisfaction last for more than five minutes or, you know, like does the work and the lead up and the buildup and the staying busy actually does the reward equal
1: that? No, my anxiety works both ways. It could be good things or bad things. It's just the, um, the inability to predict how my day is going to go. Um, other than things like this, like I knew I was coming here this morning talking to you, mm-hmm. but invariably, as soon as I pick up my phone, someone's going to say, can you be here at noon? Can you do this thing? Can you talk to this person? Can you do? And if I can't prepare, if I can't sort of have some semblance of control over a day, I will be um, unsteady on the inside. So all of that stuff that you're talking about, that's around the show, the press to this, I'm doing the podcast for the after show. I'm doing the after show. Um, We're working on season two. Um, Movies, development stuff, comic books, things. Um, there's so much happening at any one time that you start to feel frazzled in a way. So there's a plus there's a plus and a minus to it. We're on some, I have some place to put my anxiety in a plus where I can work, I can do that. But the minus is I really like to control my day. And right now there's no control over my day. My mom would say to me, your life
0: is so exciting, right? You're like, oh my yeah. God, your life is yeah. so exciting. Is it like, yeah, is
1: it really? Is that, is that the way I don't think do you, that's the word. do you get the one, uh, yeah, you get to do what you love? Yeah, um, of course. Yes. Yeah, so and love I do, it. but I do. Yes. Yes yes, so do. yes. yes. But there's another thing. There's another layer a dimension to that idea. Yes. I get to do this thing. And yes, I do love this thing. I love it when it's over. I love it when it's done. I love the script. Like when it's finished, I've gone over it a hundred times. I've obsessed over it. I can't. Every trick in my mind has, you know, where I have polished a thing and it's the best that I'm capable of making it. I like that moment. Every moment up until then is like pushing a rock up a hill. Sisyphus pushing a rock up the hill. Okay, but wait, the show comes out. You're Mm -hmm. watching the show. Mm -hmm.
0: When I have a book come out, I probably won't watch it, but yes. All right. Well, let's, you know, (laughs) yes, I have a book come out. I see every wart in that book. I'm not the guy who's like, oh, this is the best book. I'm so happy. Yep. When someone says to me, your book on blank is my favorite, blah, blah, blah. My first reaction in my head is really, mm-hmm. really? Yep.
1: You don't even watch the show. That's why I don't watch it for what you just said. I see. I know what it could have been. I've seen I've been through the process, like on set, watching it come together, writing it, you know, uh, working with writing it. Uh, every aspect of it I've seen. So I've seen what song used to be there that I thought was better than what we did or, you know, vice versa, anything. But I can't watch it in the same way and enjoy it and sit back and enjoy it. I I don't think I've watched virtually everything, whether it's Boondocks, Everybody Hates Chris, American Gods, whatever. I don't think I've watched any of that stuff, certainly in real time, like when it aired, unless I had to. So we had a thing where I was invited and I had to sit there and watch it. I don't watch it. Now, wait, is that more because...
0: You don't want to see your own work or you don't want to see how people fucked
1: up your work. I think for me, I heard Quentin Tarantino say this once. Um, I know how good it was in my head. And when you execute it, it's never as good as it is in your head. And the only thing that gets in the way is you. So invariably, I'm judging myself when I see the thing that is imperfect, that in my head was perfect. Wow, Tarantino's right. That's 100% right. That's really <laughs> so it's hard. like, that's the thing. I'm the problem. It's like, yes, I'm the one who made the thing, but I know what the thing could have been because it was such a great idea at two in the morning when I thought of it. And and executing it, you know, it just diminished from that point on. That is truly amazing.
0: I think all that, so my best ideas come in the shower. I'll be standing in the mm-hmm. shower. Oh my God, this is what I need to write next. This is the book. Mm-hmm. And it never gets better from there. Yeah,
1: no. No, because you got to actually do it. And then the doing, all of the realities of the doing, the verb of doing come to the fore. And then that's it's just downhill from there. Yeah, totally.
0: How did you get involved in winning time? Like, how did this begin
1: for you? Uh, well, again, Max Bornstein is all things. God, as I like to refer to him as, or as he likes to me for me to refer to him as. Uh, we met on vinyl he hired me actually we had a meeting at a coffee shop this is about six years ago uh we met at a coffee shop supposed to have a quick 15 minute interview lasted like four hours or so and i think we both realized it was like a meet cute in a romantic comedy you know we sort of knew we had a thing um, or at least we thought we had a thing and then that sort of grew to um me working on vinyl with him like got hired and uh You know, we really, really hit it off. And unfortunately, it was season two of Vinyl. We got uh, canceled prematurely. And as I was leaving, because I've been in TV for a while, I'm used to shows getting canceled. That's what shows do. And he followed me to the parking lot. And he said, hey, um, I've got this book that I optioned, Ark of Justice. I'm thinking about adapting it into a movie. Would you like to write it with me? Yeah, Sure. And through that process, I think we went from sort of guys who wrote on TV, a TV show together to partners and friends. And so I know him really well. He knows me really well. And in any collaborative effort, it's almost like in sports. Like if you know your teammate, if you know the guy that you're lining up next to, it gives you a certain air of confidence because there's no filter there. You can just talk to that guy because you're both singularly focused on a common goal. And we're that way sort of in life as friends and, and partners, collaborators, what have you. So when he got the assignment for Winning Time, you know, there's an aspect of the show that I think I sort of fit I check a box for. And he reached out. He's like, you know, would you like to come on this journey with me? And uh, at the time, I think he was doing the movie Worth and I was doing Wu-Tang and American Saga. But we were both in New York. So we would get together on the weekends and start to sort of flesh out what the show would be, what it would look like, what it would feel like, uh, go over the pilot that he had written. And, you know, I would add my contributions to it and what I thought it needed and back and forth. And that sort of went on for a little while until we officially um, were able to dot the I's and cross the T's and get me on. And then we went back to L.A. and started
0: writing a show. So, all right, you basically, you have a team, you have an era, the Lakers in the 1980s. Yep. You have a book that I wrote about the 1980 Lakers. Yep. And you're taking all these things and there are different, obviously a million source materials for about that time period. And you're creating a show based on it, but it's not a documentary. So you have a character, Magic Johnson, you have a character, Jeannie Buss, you have a character, mm-hmm. Pat Riley. What are the complications of taking real people and turning them into TV characters that are based on, but aren't 100% precisely the real people.
1: All you really have are facts and stuff. Uh, we have a, it's almost like you're coming from just information. I did this, I'm adapting uh, the Tiger Woods book for a mini series as well. And uh, even though Winning Time isn't a miniseries, but it's a similar process where you take a figure And you read the book, you get the facts, they did this, they did that, this was this story, that was that story. And then you try to to develop some semblance of empathy for that person or that character. And then you try to humanize them. You try to create some semblance of a dynamic to where you take it from a fact and you make it into, you add two more dimensions to it, some human stuff, uh, some drama. Then you structure it into a scene um, that is going to progressively move into a story, you know, that, uh, that connects to all the other stories that are in the script. But humanizing it and being able to empathize with it, for me, that's the biggest part. If I can take like a Magic Johnson and say, OK, what must it have been like at 19 years old coming from Lansing, Michigan to go to L.A.? which is a much bigger idea, not just playing professional basketball, which is another thing entirely, but going from one environment into another environment, what must that have felt like? You know, what type of trepidation, what type of fear, but wait a minute, I've been playing basketball my whole life and I know I'm really, really good. I just beat Larry Bird in the NC2A championship. Um, You know, you're trying to relate to this character. You're trying to find the stuff that makes them tick. And then you're trying to find other information to sort of support what you think it might be, you know, in articles or in interviews on YouTube or different things that you're researching. So you're trying to create this idea of who this person is as a human being, not so much the verb of what they do, whether it's a basketball player or a general manager or a coach. You're trying to find out what's under that person. And then you can create some semblance of a structure emotionally in order to make that character something more than just what they are uh, within the compounds of the book. It's funny because Magic Johnson said he's not interested in a
0: show, but we both yeah. know he's going to watch a show. Um, when he watches the show, unlike Rodney Barnes, he will watch the yes. show. Yes, he will. Um, For different reasons, I'm sure. Of course. When the show comes out and he inevitably tweets, well, I never did that. Or, you know, yeah. I never thought yeah. that. Like, I'm on team this show, obviously. This show, you know, right. this show means a lot to me. Right. I do understand
1: that reaction. He's like, I am I Magic too. Cotton. I do, too. What do we say to him? Well, the first thing is, you know, from, from a place of um, a practical place, you say You can't take uh, something that took three months in real time. You know, we condensed it to 15 minutes. So we've got to pat some things together. So, of course, you may not have done this or that or whatever, but we needed to do what we had to do and to be able to tell the story. Um, The other part of it is, I think for me, and I can only say this for myself, not for the network or anybody else associated with the show. uh, I really appreciate Magic Johnson. I really appreciate his contributions to the game. Huge fan of his. Hated that he beat my Dr. J-led 76ers for years, Um, but really a big part of my sports life, you know, as far as being a fan. So I would never do anything that I would consider disparaging or harmful to his legacy. I think everything that we do, what's under that, including what's in your book, is like a love letter to the game and to the men who played the game and were part of the game, the business of the game. So I know that's really hard and it's a really vulnerable place to be when someone's talking about your life and your accomplishments um, and you don't really have a say or a part in it. You know, Uh, I get it, but this isn't a hit job. This isn't something to smear, a smear campaign or something like this. This really is doing our best to tell uh, a story that's marinated in respect and trying to, to actually exalt the thing that they did.
0: You've obviously worked in TV a long time. I have not. For my money, Quincy Isaiah, the actor who's playing magic Mm -hmm. is the best out of nowhere find I've ever seen in TV. I mean,
1: I don't like to give Quincy any credit whatsoever. (laughs) I hope Quincy's listening to this.
0: Wait, wait, wait. You told me beforehand he's an asshole and he shouldn't be in this business. But, you know. Exactly.
1: I've said that to him. We have dinner once a week and for hours and hours and hours. He's been to my home. He's like my little brother. I I always describe him as a kid that can sing really well, but he's bad. And but he could be Bruno Mars one day. So you got to be nice to him. So that's sort of my relationship with Quince. Wait, I have a question, being serious, and I, I never mm-hmm. thought
0: of this until literally this moment. Here's this kid, Quincy Isaiah from mm-hmm. Michigan,
1: mm-hmm.
0: played college football. Quincy Crosby's real, real name, played college football, as yeah. a center of college football. He's out of nowhere. Yep. He's cast as Magic Johnson in the show. Yep. He's
1: spectacularly good. Yep. Is acting not that hard? <laughs> No, acting, I'm actually in the show as a character in the show. And I don't consider myself to be an actor either. Um, I think what it is, is you have to have certain traits. Quincy has a lot of charisma, a lot of natural charisma. And he's a hard worker, even though he football is his natural sport. Once you play a major sport, you sort of understand the math of sports. You know, even if you're not as good as, you know, you have one specialty area, I think this is the best case scenario, if I were Quincy, to be able to step into, you know, there are a lot of boxes that it checks. He's from Michigan. Magic's from Michigan. Uh, he understands the culture and the cadence of the language. Um, he has some natural gifts. It's like it really does speak to the the role speaks to a lot of things that he naturally brings to the table anyway. So I think you're right. It is like a um, it's like hitting a lottery.
0: Before we continue with Two Writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor.
1: Hey, this is Jeff Perlman,
0: and I'm here with my son Emmett, who walked the red carpet last week at the premiere of Winning Time. So what was that like? The Emmett says talk to his publicist. What? The Emmett says he needs a nap in the Zen room from 317 to 415 and that he shall not be disturbed. The Emmett says to fetch him two Oakland Invaders jerseys and a Houston Gamblers t-shirt from RuralRetros.com. The Emmett says it's the king of throwback sports merchandise. Oh, and the Emmett also wants a papaya smoothie, two cubes of crushed ice, not three. Breh, why the arrogance? You were just an extra. The Emmett says don't be jealous of the Emmett. Wait, well, I'm going to ask you another question I've never asked anyone that just popped in my head. Yep. You're me, you write the book. The yep. book is often Jim Hecht, options a book. Yep. Come comes to my house it becomes this thing in my mind, the author me is supposed to stay the fuck out of the way. Like Mm -hmm. nobody wants an author hovering over being like, no, this isn't right. That isn't right. Oh, I should be in the room, blah, 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 blah. I feel like it is my job to stay out of the way, smile, be helpful when they ask questions. they have asked a lot of questions. I always answer come to the set once or twice, which I've done. You guys have been great. Mm -hmm. I feel like nobody wants it. I feel like nobody wants an author around period. But nobody wants an overbearing author. Am I correct or am I wrong?
1: You are correct, certainly in the last part. I think with us and, and what you've been is a resource, a necessary resource. And I had this um, uh, with Armin and Jeff Benedict with the Tiger Woods book as well. You guys are invaluable with filling in gaps, but you're right with timing, You know, if you become the overbearing guy that you just force yourself into the process because it is a different process. Writing a screenplay is different than writing a book, but you're a necessary part of the process because there's so much we don't know when we're walking in. I've been watching basketball my entire life when I was watching the Lakers. This was the period of time when I was watching the Lakers, and there's so much I didn't know. And so you need that. You know, you need a guy like you to be there to say, no, it was really this. No, it was really that. And Sometimes it's a lot of that. Sometimes you might not hear from us for months, but it's still your your presence is omnipresent, whether it's the book itself or you.
0: My joy, truly my joy in watching the episodes is Jack McKinney being brought to light, because mm-hmm. I feel like Jack McKinney, who was a coach of Lakers before Wes said them before Riley was mm-hmm. really a forgotten part of this off. And seeing the prominence that his story gets in this brings me joy, like tremendous joy.
1: The brilliance of the show to me is that we we give you some of what you know and some of what you don't know. Right. So if you don't know who uh, Jack McKinney or Spencer Haywood were or you don't remember them and the contributions that they've made, um, You know, you will be surprised when you see that story. I think most people are so focused on the Magic Johnson, Pat Riley, Kareem, you know, stuff that they'll be surprised with the stuff like the McKinney's and his story. And it's such a um, I don't want to say sad story. I don't want to give anything away. But it is um, it is not a happy story. Yeah, it's not a happy story, but it is one of those stories to where it's like, wow why don't I know that? Why don't I know this guy? You know, why don't I know this part of uh, basketball history?
0: Right. All right. So speaking of history, Rodney Barnes is history. Fascinating. Howard, university grad. You kind of work in as a, you know, a PA on different mm-hmm. movies. I love this. A stand-in for Michael Clark Duncan in the green mile. Well, yep. you really were standing for Michael Clark Duncan in the Green Mile I was
1: that was um, I don't that's a story. That's a long story. I'll try to make it an abbreviated story. I was working as a production assistant on the movie Stigmata. Oh, wait, what I, does a
0: PA do? What is a PA's main role? Real a part?
1: production assistant is sort of a gopher, you okay. know, at least for me. There are different types of production assistants, so no disparaging any production assistant that does more than what I did. What I did was hand out walkie-talkies in the morning, whatever the director, producers wanted. I was there to facilitate their needs. But I'm a huge Stephen King fan. I've read virtually everything that Stephen King has written that has been published that I'm aware of. And um, I was working on Stigmata, and I found out that the transportation coordinator on that movie was going over to the Green Mile. So I've been reading for months that they were looking for large Black men to come in and audition for the John Coffee role in the Green Mile. You are a large black man. I'm a large, I'm an incredibly large black man. And so um, I begged the transportation coordinator to do something to help me. So after hearing me enough, he said, you know, I've got this 1939 paddy wagon that I have to take over to Warner Brothers for them to check out, whatever. If you get in the back of the paddy wagon, you will give them some size proximity as to how this character will look in the paddy wagon. The problem is there's no air conditioning or shock absorbers in a 1939 paddy wagon. So by the time we drove from the lot to there, I actually looked like an inmate at the very least, but Frank Darabont, David Valdez, the executive producer of the movie were there, scared the shit out of him. I jump out of the back and I'm sweating. And everything and in a big and I'm black, and I'm sweating, and they were terrified. But after they heard the explanation for why I was in the back of the paddy wagon, Frank Darabont, who used to be a production assistant himself, was so impressed by you know my desire to be a part of the movie that in that moment he hired me to be a stand-in on the movie. And the cat, the the part hasn't been casted yet, so I would. On the audition days, it was Bill Duke, Shia McBride, and finally Michael Clark Duncan. I would walk them from the parking lot to the set to audition for their part. And I would wear the coveralls and the thing. And um, I would be there to help set camera and do whatever. And um, it was a great experience. I mean, I did meet Stephen King. He did sign all my books. He lived up to my fantasy idea of what I hoped him for him to be. I have a big picture of he and I together over my fireplace. And um, it was a great experience. That's a great story. Was there a moment where you thought maybe they'll cast me? No, I knew in the book that they wanted a different type of energy and a different type of vibe to come from him than what I was, you know, and I look nothing like Michael Clark. We just happened to both be big and black, but, I wasn't going to point that out. I was just happy to be there.
0: All right. So you work as a PA or production assistant on Major Pain, the Damon yes. Wayne film. And yes. he winds up hiring you. Ultimately, you moved to L.A. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. hires you as a writer, producer on his show that appeared, was on ABC for six years. Yeah, six. Years. Uh, my wife and kids. Yep. Is writing on a TV show. I guess this is like you're like, holy shit, I'm getting hired to write on this TV show. It's Damon Waynes. It's a big star. I'm in L.A. This is great. Is it what people would think it is?
1: No, there was some there's some stuff in between there because he didn't immediately hire me. He told me I should come to. L- I drove out. The way it would work is I would commute from Maryland to L.A. for work. So Damon would call me on a Friday and say, if you could be here by Monday, you got a job. So I would drive straight from Maryland to L.A. You would drive. Yeah. I had a little green pickup, a GMC Sonoma, and I would drive cross country. And I would get there like just in the nick of time. And, um, I remember I was working with him on a movie bulletproof. I'm actually in that movie in a scene with, uh, Adam Sandler. I'm about to rape Adam Sandler and Damon rescues him. And I have no lines, but I growl And I guess back then when you were about to rape a guy in jail, you would growl. And, um, he said, you know, Rod, if you really want to be in this business, you got to move to L.A. This whole commuting thing doesn't like how can you take a meeting if someone calls you immediately? So I moved to L.A. I live in my car for like eight months and I just so happened I was going into tower. wait! Hey, come out. No, no, no. Did you actually live in your car? I did on the corner of Laurel Canyon and Ventura Boulevard. It used to be a Long's Drugs. Now it's a CVS. Uh, There's a retaining wall there. And I would park my car up against there and I would sleep in my car. Holy shit. Wait, is is that just a matter of you wanting this really badly? There was a point in my life when, you know, when I got out of high school, I knew I wasn't good enough to be a pro athlete, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I bummed around at a bunch of colleges before I ended up at Howard and all of that to play ball. But I knew in the back of my mind, what good was. I remember Lefty Giselle uh, at University of Maryland. I walked in one day and I said, you know, if I can get into school, would you let me be a walk on? And he looked me up and down and he called over one of his players and um, he said, play the 10. And I'm in street clothes and this guy beats the hell out of me. I don't even know what the guy's name is. And he said, "Thank you for coming, son. Good luck with your with your life." Oh my God. <laughs> and so I knew that was sort of the end. That was sort of the end of this. You know what? This basketball thing and football they, those things aren't working. So I went to Howard, and then I got serious about it. And I knew in Maryland that there was nothing left for me. So being in LA, even though I had no idea how you become a writer, what you do, what the bridge is to go from your car to sitting in a writer's room. I knew I was closer to doing something here than I was back there. So it wasn't so bad. It wasn't like, uh, oh, I'm homeless. It wasn't so much, I didn't even think about it like that because I knew there was a purpose, it was a purpose under it. And I was probably happier doing that because I was working on, um, still as a production assistant, I worked on Blade, I worked on the Rush Hour movies, um, worked on a bunch of movies while I was living in my car. And it wasn't bad because craft services, you could eat anything all day. They feed you anything you want. Um, the transport guys would give me gas. It wasn't a bad gig. I just want to say the first time I come to set for
0: the uh, for the Lakers show, they say uh, there's craft services. And I'm like, what? Like, Yeah, you just, you know, just get whatever you want. Wait, I can go back again. Go back again.
1: And, and back then, it was a different kind of craft services. It wasn't like what we have now. I mean, you had virtually everything, because these were big productions I was working on, right. and movies a little bit different than TV shows. And they had everything and anything you wanted. So if I ate enough during the day, I could surely make it overnight to the next morning to do this thing again. Right. I can take a shower in the honey wagon. I can do anything I want. So this isn't like homelessness, like, um, you know, what you see on TV. Right. You weren't living under a bridge. You were living in your car. No, exactly. exactly. With craft services. With, daily with craft food. Free gas, free food, you know, 120 bucks a day. I started a garbage business where they would give me a $1.50 a bag at the end of the night, uh, the catering guys to and locations. And I put it in the back of my truck and I had to find dumpsters all over L.A. to get rid of the stuff. But I'd make an extra $150, $200. Bucks. So I was doing pretty good in my mind. Yeah. Wait, so um,
0: you start writing for TV and you do write on the show, My Wife and Kids. That's my first over the, yes, yes, my first above board gig. Um, TV writing confuses me. Writer rooms confuse me because in my world, I am very used to, you're by yourself. I might be in a coffee shop. I'm still by myself. They say, I'm going to write a Bo Jackson book. Okay, we'll see you in two years. You right. hand in the book in two years. There are no meetings. Nobody bothers right. you. I don't have to say, Rodney, what do you think of this? And you go, no, I don't like that. And you, I think it would drive me crazy being in a writer's room and writing shows. Why am I wrong?
1: Because it gave me an opportunity. I knew when I got there, I wasn't automatically like day one, a writer. I knew that I had um, a lot of stuff to learn. I knew that, um, By listening to great writers do their thing, having a great showrunner like uh, Don Rio, who became sort of a mentor to me, uh, both in the writing game and in life, um, it was an opportunity to sort of a bridge from zero to one and listening, just listening to great writers doing their thing and then finding my way into the process. And once you become part of a collaborative process, again, it's like a team. One that works because I've been on like is like in uh, sports, you have teams that work and teams that don't work. Um, This one worked for me. And. I was able to gain a semblance of confidence, still dealing with imposter syndrome, like what the hell am I doing sitting in this room? All of these people are geniuses. You're dumb. Go back to Maryland. Uh, In massive insecurity. I brought that with me from Maryland, too. And. I had an opportunity to work all of that stuff out before someone, if if I was in your shoes and I had for two years to go write a book, six years later, I might have half of a book. With. <laughs> yeah, Because I didn't have the discipline. I didn't have structure. I didn't have any of those things that you need to do what it is you do. I have a little bit of it now, mm-hmm. but the thing with the sitcom is every week you're going to make a show good, bad someplace in between you're going to make a show. So there's a discipline there's a work ethic. There's a thing that has to be done regardless of whether you want to do it, you don't want to do it. So now, a little more, you know, 20 years later, I've gotten to a place where this is like a routine now. It's like practicing a a free throw. You do it so much that it just becomes, you know, second nature. And that's sort of what writing for television is for me. What is it or how is it
0: when you're in a writer's room and there's just people who are uh, in your eyes, idiots, or don't get it, or don't know what they're doing, or annoying Yeah, them.
1: I've had that problem. Um, and I, I've had to learn another discipline thing is your own temperament, being self-aware. Uh, the great thing I learned from, like I said, my mentors and, and Don is you have to be able to say a thing without obviously saying a thing. If you, like a coach, If you can say things to a player that can ruin a player or empower a player. And I've learned that in my worst times, when I've said things or done things that weren't the best representation of me, I've always paid a price for it. So if I'm working with someone that I don't particularly mesh with, um, I can say something to that person to hurt their feelings or insult them. But I got to sit next to them for another six months or however long it's going to be. So that actually makes things worse. And I feel guilty because that's not what I want to do. It's just a reactive thing in a moment. So you learn to sort of live with it, to try to find the virtues in that person. You try to find there's some, there's a reason they're in that room. There's something that they do to to contribute. That's why they're there. And if they're not, they won't be there very long anyway. And I won't have to do anything about it. Someone else will notice. So, The best thing to do is to find the better virtues of folk and and yourself, and just be disciplined enough to understand why you're there in the first place. It's not to get along. It's not show friends. It's show business. So really hard. It is really hard, but it's hard in life. But it's like any other occupation. If I was on fries at McDonald's and the guy that was doing the fish fillets was getting on my nerves, it'd be the same thing. You worked on Everybody Hates
0: Chris, the Chris Rock show. Yeah. Again, another thing you don't have to do when you write books is write for someone else's voice. You know, like yeah. I never have to. It's always my voice. I'm writing the book. I'm the narrator. Yeah. You're writing on TV. You were writing. You were thinking of the characters and who they are. And a guy like Chris Rock, obviously, has a very specific sort of cadence and approach. To Is it hard to put yourself in the mind and body of other people you are writing for?
1: No, no. Um... Well, it's according to who it is. Let me say that. In the case of Chris Rock, what gave me an advantage was day one when I was hired. If you've seen Everybody Hates Chris, there's a lot of voiceover of the actual Chris Rock. I recorded that, wrote it, recorded it with Chris and placed it into the show. So I spent a lot of time with Chris Rock. My second day on the job, Chris and I were walking to ADR to do the recording session. And we did this like twice a week for four years. So we really got to know each other and we really spent a lot of time with each other. And I think one of the things that writers um, do or quality writers are able to do is you're sort of intuitive. You know, you can sort of um, not just hear what a person's saying, but hear what's under that, under what they're saying as well, and body language and different things. And, in the process of becoming friends with someone, you know, it's an exchange of information and you're both sizing each other up. And I think Chris and I were able to do that early on. And we made for a great pair that endures to this day. We talked this morning. So it's like, you know, I work on his specials, I work on a, Different things together. We help each other with our problems in life, and um, it's truly a friendship. Not all relationships are that when you're working on a show or a thing, but I always try to get to know the person. You know, all joking aside, with Quincy, we spend a lot of time together. Solomon, we spend a lot of time together. And I wanted that to be the case because, yeah, you're doing Kareem, uh, you're telling the story of Kareem and Magic and these players, but you sort of have to get to know the person that's the instrument for the storytelling as well, so that the things that you can play to their strengths and um, that helps inform you when you're writing the story of uh, who this guy is, how they tick, um, all that stuff. This world of Hollywood, so I've lived out
0: here for seven years. Mm -hmm. There's a ton of bullshit. Like I was telling Jim Hecht about Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. early on, someone tried buying one of my books, right? And he takes Mm -hmm. me to the Soho house. Oh, they got you. He starts showing. He takes out his phone and he's scanning through all. And he's literally like, "I fucked her. I fucked her. I fucked her." Okay. And I'm like, "I'm never going to deal with this guy again." When you have guys who come out, like, come out here, Quincy, good example. Young African American kids in an unfamiliar turf. Blah 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Do you worry about them getting swept away by the bullshit of it all? And are there things you do to
1: help them? One of the the things for me that, again, going back to Don Rio and Damon Wayans, Damon first. uh, Damon helped me in a practical way understand the psychology of Hollywood. Um, Don helped me understand it from a writing place and also from a business place. About three or four years ago, I started to, to realize that some of these younger actors look at me the way that I looked at him. And I'm just the guy. I'm like, who am I? But I realized that, okay, when they tell me, man, I grew up on your TV shows. okay, I'm I'm old, A. But there's something they see in me that might be of value, some information or something along the way that might be able to to help them. And we've had those conversations. And anyone who asks, and it took me a while to get to this place because I wasn't comfortable with it. Because you're always, I'm like, what do I know? You know, what do I know? And there are other writers. It's harder with writers than it is with actors, because writers invariably want you to read their script, or um, you know, to do a practical thing. If they want just general information or that type of thing, I'm happy to give it. But you know, let's go to dinner, let's talk, let's this that. All of that is like time, and I don't have time. But when it comes to someone you're working with day to day on the show, like a Quincy or a Salman. You want to get to know, you know, you want to be a positive force, not just in life, but for the thing that we're all tasked here to do. And I'm way more comfortable with it in you know, recent years than I was prior to.
0: Well, I just want to say there's nothing weirder. I mean, there are weirder things, but it is weird when all right, I came up at Sports Illustrated and there were these writers who I looked to, right? Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh my God, Steve, all these guys, Rick Riley. Oh my God. Yeah. And you think, you think of them in a certain way. Yep. And then you get to that age and you realize some people think of you in that way. Exactly. And then you realize they were never thinking of themselves in that way. exactly. That's
1: it. That man. It's like two points. I want to go back to a point that you made a moment ago too, about that guy at the Soho house. I know that guy. I may not know that guy, but I know that guy. And, I used to, I remember, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, There's a guy we both know, having never had this conversation before. When I first, I got out of my car because uh, my son's mother um, sent him to come live in LA with me. And I had to get out of my car. We needed a place to live. So I get this apartment and now, i got I have to pay rent every month uh because I gotta put a roof over i gotta feed this kid i gotta blah 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 and we had had like a two year separation I'd been in l a and um we get to a place i meet a guy a professional athlete who wants to get into movies. I believe he's in movies because he's been in a movie so he hires me to write a screenplay for him. And he's going to pay me X dollars. We really don't settle on a number because at that time, I'm happy to get anything that I can get because I need money to pay this rent. I write the script. He likes the script. And now it's time for me to get paid. And he says, uh, get in a car. OK, you can really just hand a check to me. But, you know, it's a nice car. And maybe he's taking me to the bank. And we drive up in the Hollywood Hills and we get to his beautiful house. And he opens his garage and there are like 200 pairs of Nikes there for the team that he plays for. And that's what he pays me in, in 10 pairs of sneakers. And I realized in that moment that everything he had said, he groomed me like to believe I was going to get a thing. I got a thing, but not the thing that I thought I was going to get. And there are guys in this business who aren't the real guy, that understand how the real guy talks, but they also know how badly you want to be part of the world that you're in, that yeah. you're trying to get into. And if they can create the illusion that they're that guy, they know how to prey on your wants and your desire and your ambition and all of that to get you to do something that benefits them. And so in order to be able to do that, they got to take you to those places and to create the illusion, right? Because you don't know you know especially if you don't come from this place and it's easy to fall it's easy to fall into the trap i've fallen into it many times even now if someone's really good i still will give it more time and attention than i, I should i am blown away by the number of people out here who quote unquote work in the
0: business there you've seen these guys mm-hmm. 42 years old they're 5 foot 6 they are quote a producer or a writer They just want to get laid by the 22-year-old hottie off the bus from Kansas who wants to be an actress.
1: Yep, all of it. But the thing is, those two energies don't go together. You can't be that guy and the other guy at the same time. You can't be the real guy and that guy. There's something about, and maybe there are who are able to. Maybe there's some people who are able to. I don't know that guy. Um, This requires such a commitment. You know, to write and produce on a regular basis for the rest of your life or however long until you retire. It requires such a commitment that you really do have to create a lifestyle and a certain sensibility to keep you sane and to keep you focused so that you can come back and do this again and again and again and again.
0: Got to ask you a final part of your career, which is mind-blowingly confusing to me and fascinating at the same time. I just want to say people can't see this. You're sitting, I'm staring behind you and I see uh, the Hulk
1: Yes, I uh, yes, my daughter
0: got that for me for Christmas. Oh, Very nice. Yes. And um, you write comic books. I do. And I was reading your review of uh, a great review, a glowing review of *Philadelphia*. Yes. One website said, what could be the best vampire comic in years? And the last comic book I read was uh, Flash Racing Superman way back in the day. So I'm out World's of- World's Finest,
1: 201. Yes. Who won that race? I don't even remember. Uh, there was a stalemate because DC would never give one of They once you do that, then it's over. You know, you want to be able to create that air of intrigue that people keep buying it to find out who would win that race. Flash. Yeah. Um,
0: wait, explain this to me. This is your. It's not just a side project. This is a major, major no. thing for you. Is
1: writing comic books. How does this even? Is uh, again. I, I mean, I think I started when I was working on the show Runaways. Uh, they were happy with my work and when I realized they were happy with my work, I said, you know, if you really want to make me happy, if you could open a door up to publishing, because I've loved comic books my entire life and I'd love to write a comic book. And then I realized how hard it was to write a comic book. Once they gave me an assignment, Falcon at Marvel was my first comic book. And like anything, the more you do it, the better at it you get. So I got Lando, uh, Uh, The Lando Calrissian from the solo movie, Lando, the Donald Glover version of Lando. I wrote a miniseries for him and then Quincredible, a few other books. And then I started to get a groove and a process in a way that, oh, okay, because I looked at comic books the way I looked at television. I was hearing a voice in my head, not understanding that the reader didn't have the same, wasn't privy to the voice that I had in my head. And I had to sort of shift things. And so I've always loved horror. Uh, The Hammer films, Universal Monsters, all of that stuff when I was a kid. So, you know, we're doing this sports bio stuff and um, I do drama, genre and different things. But I wanted to open up a lane that hadn't opened up to me yet of horror. So right now and looking at my board, I'm probably writing about 12 monthly comic books at the same time, uh, which is madness. which is truly madness, but and most of them are in the mystery supernatural realm. Uh, I started my own publishing company, Zombie Love Studios, and maybe partnering with Snoop Dogg uh, to do some stuff. And I just love it; it's fun. Uh, it's a way to keep me again that exercise of writing when I'm not doing the thing that we do. That's beholden to a lot of other voices and people coming in and sort of picking at it and judging it and noting it, I can write a comic book and really only have my editor to hold me accountable. I mean, you read a comic book, it's 12 word bubble, 10 word bubble,
0: you know, like the, the sparseness and the narrowness of words and the lack of a million adjectives.
1: Is it a different muscle than writing for a completely, di- completely different muscle? Um, you have to learn. I had to learn the relationship between art and words. And that's not um, that's not hard. that's not easy. Um, Because especially if you get certain artists, you really have to to write to the tone of what they do. I've been fortunate with Philadelphia with um, artist Jason Sean Alexander, who's an incredible artist. We got to know each other before we worked together, a lot like Max and I. And once you understand how they tick in their work and I can write to his strengths and bring out the best I think in storytelling. But it took a while, I didn't know any of that. I just, it's a comic book, it's a superhero, it's Falcon. He fights people. He flies. That's all I do. Yeah. Um, I got to ask you a
0: final question. It's required on yeah. this podcast. Yes. Yeah. We have sports writers on and I ask them their worst confrontation as a sports writer because we all have our confrontations with athletes. Um, you're not a sports writer. However, you've worked in this business for a long time. What's your worst confrontation you've ever had
1: in the world of showbiz? There are a bunch one comes to mind um i was a production assistant i'll go way back that's the safest one to tell there is an actress whose name you know uh we were at the chateau Marmont, and my job was to sit outside of her room and if she needed anything i was supposed to get it for her. and i sat in the sun for like six hours and in like hour number four She opens up her window, and she says, um, I'd like some toothpaste and a toothbrush. And, okay, and I get on the radio, and she would like some toothpaste and toothbrush. So about 15 minutes later, it hasn't come yet. She says, have you gotten my toothpaste? And she's a little more stern now with the second one. And now they haven't, but I'm on the radio again. It's toothpaste, toothbrush. She really, really, really needs it. So 10 minutes later, now she's mad. Where's my fucking toothbrush and toothpaste? Now I'm nervous, you know, because I need this job. And as I'm at the radio, in my periphery, I see something flying at me. And she threw like a paperweight and hit me in the corner of the head. Now, at this moment, I'm not thinking about my job. And I turn and I look at her and she hurried up and she closed the window because at that moment now she's seeing I stand up and now I don't have that. I'm trying to please you look on my face. And later she apologized and she's like, I'm going through something. I'm going I've got some problems and blah, blah, blah. Please don't kill me. And I was cool. But that's the story that comes to mind. Yeah, but did you get her her toothpaste? Uh, She might not have had teeth. At the end of the day, she was about to lose. They wouldn't be clean. They'd be clean on the ground. Somebody got her a toothbrush and toothpaste. At that moment, the dynamic changed once she hit me. But yeah. That's a good one. Well,
0: uh, listen, Rodney, man, seriously, thank you so much for doing this. I hope this doesn't sound corny. I really appreciate that you were working on the show based on the book. And it's really an honor for me. And I feel like you guys have just, you've really done it with class and a million levels of skill and i really appreciate it so
1: thank you very much you're welcome
0: i want to thank today's guest rodney barnes for joining me on two riders singing yang you can follow rodney on twitter at the rodney barnes and visit his website at rodney if you have a chance and enjoy two riders singing yang please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review i make no money for doing this and i rely on word of mouth also check out my free weekly writing Substack at Perlman.Substack.com. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.